How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. Hey, you're listening to the Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 198. Don't mess up. Is that the first time in 198 episodes I've messed up the intro lead-in? I will say this, Zeke. It'll be the first time that I'm going to leave it in. Well, started from the bottom, and now I'm not there. And now we're here. Because I'm back down at one for not messing up. I know, but it's okay, because I'll I'll give you a little pat on the back for something Mm. we said last week, Zeke, on the show. Because we were indeed correct. I looked it up. Adrian Brody. Brody. Oh, my goodness. Now I'm stuffing up. Sam Rockwell. Indeed have not shared a scene together on camera until See How They Run which we covered last week. Isn't that wild? It was a theory we had. We said we watched that scene and it kind of felt unique. Yes. That we hadn't it felt like we hadn't seen them together and I, and I you can go on IMDb collaborations and like search, you know, multiple actors or I guess it would be primarily actors like who oh I guess directors were like who's worked together. Mm. So like certain directors and producers have they worked together, I guess. Um yeah, other than some random I think Emmys uh, broadcast that was the only film they've worked on together, so... There you go. So we were on to it there, Zeke. So we made up for uh, for this week's mistakes. But Seinfeld's not a mistake, mm. though. I haven't seen it, but yeah. I imagine. I've heard it's good. Well, mistakes <laughs> are a part of uh, all films. Um, quirky, not quirky, improv, everything like that. Yep. I'm reaching for this segue, but Jake... I oh, reach well. Thought I did pretty well there. Imperfections are all over the film of the week, but are welcomed. Uh, but I'm more asking, do you have any trivia available? <laughs> this is going to be one of the worst. Uh, uh, are we just both out of it this week? It's a cold opening. There's been so much else going on. It's it's and it's not like I haven't watched stuff. Right. It's just I've watched. I've watched very little. Okay. So that's fine. That's I. Sh- I have no excuse for it. But I do have a fun fact for you though, because. We're talking about, obviously, uh, Quentin Tarantino's directorial debut. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things. It's not the first time I've seen this film, but watching this again through that lens of, okay, this almost... It feels very important in that sense Mm. that it is his first film. There's many, many scenes we're going to talk about with that context of this being, like, the start of, like, a wider filmography, a widely respected filmography. Um, But, of course, one of his directorial trademarks if you will is, is the fact that all of these films have some level of ultra violence yes um even films like once upon a time in hollywood it's reserved to very specific points in the film but nevertheless is there uh which is ironic because producer lawrence bender made sure that when they started filming this they started with the tamer scenes and shot those first so that uh when the film's backers would watch the dailies they wouldn't be scared off by the violence so i think i think the fact that they're trying to make this film hiding Tarantino's violence when ultimately a lot of the tickets sold in future Tarantino films would be because of that violence. I found that interesting. That is quite interesting. Yeah. What about you? What, what's your fun fact? Well, I mean, obviously this whole uh, film is uh, an ensemble piece. Um, mm. Obviously some characters do have a lot more lines than others. And what I found quite funny was that the diner scene was introduced solely off the back of giving Mr. Blue played by... <laughs> and this is the fact I have to check. Edward this. Bunker. Edward Bunker. Um, some lines, because in the original screenplay, he didn't have any, which 
Wow, yeah. He's quite interesting. Obviously, this, this film has um, very clear-cut, important characters, and then ones that are less so. Um, mm. One-liner characters. Um, and it is quite interesting, because a lot of people, you really could basically um, melt down what we would know now know to become the director, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. to that opening um, diner scene. The use of dialogue, storytelling, there's almost a three-act structure within that opening um, prologue. Right. Um, it's a very, very similar scene, yeah. Um, and something we would go on to, I think he'd go on to perfect in obviously future iterations. I mean, most people remember the diner scene at the start of Pulp Fiction, which is obviously... Mm the successor to this film. Um, but even in, in films such as Hateful Eight and um, even to an extent in some sequences in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think that it exists. Um, the hangout scene. Yeah. In a way, yeah. So um, it is interesting that, that that was solely added just to give one of the cast members who a lot of the, you know, this, like we were saying, were littered with facts and trivia for this film. Mm. Um, mainly because it's hailed as one of the best independent films of all time. Um, yeah, this is uh, this has to be like peak Miramax right here. With, I mean, just uh, I mean, it's funny because this film is so obviously we've gone on to inspire a lot of filmmakers and I guess specifically student filmmakers is because of how cool and suave the film is. But in terms of it being like a near pitch perfect directorial debut and uh, the career that Tarantino went on, because it wasn't always, he wasn't always going to direct this. It's, it, uh, you know, I mean, he wrote quite a few films around this time. Mm. I think Natural Born Killers and a few ones like that, that I don't think the expectation was that he would go on to be this, you know, landmark director. Yeah. So I, th- I think it, it worked out for him, and I think the film itself is very influential for mm. that reason. But we'll, we'll get into all of that soon. Zeke. The poster behind you, 1,100 yeah, films, it, it, it's it on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't even need to go I better, for the full I better question, and I don't think we'll ever we'll answer this question just over probably doing all of his, what, what's it, 10 films now? He's on 10? Is yeah, it, 10? it depends if you count Kill Bill as one or two films. Yeah, that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. What does he... But he numbers them, He considers he? it as one film, one yeah. complete film, so hence nine films he has yeah. directed and written and directed. Still got to do that 10th one. I miss him. You know what? Rewatching Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, I miss Tarantino. It's been three years. No hint at what he's actually going to do next. There's been a lot of rumors, you know, Star Trek and Kill Bill sequel and blah, 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 blah. It's like, I don't know if they've locked anything in yet, but mm. it's been three years, man. It's like, we're already getting new films from Scorsese. I mean, that that got delayed to hell. We should have had that by now. The the flowers of the yellow whatever moon, whatever the, whatever it's called. <laughs> Got another Ryan Johnson one coming around the corner, and yeah, exactly around the same time, and he's already got another Knives Out coming out. I just I miss Tarantino. Hurry up, man! Hurry yeah. up! Just just hurry up. Well, Jake, have you caught much <laughs> in the last week? No, I sadly haven't. I went down a Steve Jobs rabbit hole as I tend to do every couple of years for mm. some reason. So obviously, I end up rewatching both the 2013, um, the Action Kutcher biopic, and then of course the uh, Fazbender biopic. Danny Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin. Mm. Oh, just just excellent. I think every time I watch it, I just have such a deeper appreciation for the latter Jobs film. Just realizing to what extent they've really 
gone to make like for almost three extended short films mm. that all fit together and it's not just the fact that they're all shot one 16 millimeter one 35 millimeter one digital but the way it reinforms that that version of job and the versions of his inventions that he's making at the time and then how different the music is between those three sections um there's just always so many layers to dig behind yeah. it but um compared to the other one <laughs> <laughs> the Atsukucha yes. one, which is more of a guilty pleasure for me, because I love, I love the whole entrepreneur coming of age. I love that whole aspect. I love just watching scenes of board meetings, which the Atsukucha version has like more mm. of that. That's why specifically. Succession hits different. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, Succession yeah. is just full of. Some people really like. That. I, I admit, I am, a, I am a big fan of the the boardroom dramas. I mean, mm. we both kind of really like the founder. Like yeah, no, a, that's a bad example. It's like a, that's another great. It's not even a bad film, but it feels like a guilty pleasure because it's just so, it just fits that wheelhouse so much yeah. that I love watching it over and over again, even though it's probably not as good as as we're giving it credit for. Yeah, no, I think it's. But I, I love the founder. No, that's a perfect example right there. Yeah. Social network to a lesser extent, but um, obviously that's brilliant. So yeah, we don't even need to talk about it in that sense. Yeah, no, I just, I love those entrepreneurs sort of rise from the grounds, especially when, you know, the characters are dickheads. <laughs> For sure. Well, speaking of rabbit holes, I too went down a rabbit hole. Yeah, so, <laughs> Zeke, yeah. does someone hack your letterbox? What's, yeah, what's right. going on? What's um, happening here? I think what it was, was, so admittedly, a lot of my friends are very big superhero fans, and if you followed this show... For any duration of time, I think, with exceptions to the rule, I genuinely, <laughs> gen like in a post Endgame world, I I'm not a fan of superhero movies, and you know we've you're more, more... into like the parodies, like the boys and is yeah, it, is it Unstoppable is that the animated one? Um, Invincible, Invincible, sorry, but yeah. my and that's a really good point. So I I then watch Invincible and I go, wow, this is really good. Mm. And what I find really interesting is I was like, I really like the animation style or I like, not to sound like every DC, every superhero comic book nerd, I like when, (laughs) at its core, I do like when they tell stories that are more derivative of their comic book origins. So, you know, we talked about Spider-Verse. I love Spider-Verse. But it's because it authentically pushes... Um, it goes that that next level with its authenticity to its sort of the source comic material. book source material. Yeah, and the boys is really good because it does still feel to an extent like it has the comic book elements, but it's ultra realistic, and that's what the selling point is. That this this would this is the uh, neo apocalypse, like the dystopian future in which mm. if superheroes were manufactured, this is the. Sure, thing, but and it's, it's a big critique on the modern superhero film landscape. Yeah. Where it's like, people love to watch Thor and, and She-Hulk, but the boys is making fun of the capitalistic notions behind the people making those films. Yeah. So there's I, a difference and, to and it. And there is a, there honestly, there's a sense of believability with, when especially when you find out in the first season to spoil the boys, mm. is, is that they're not chosen like they are in comic books they're just made and they're just it's they're drug addicts <laughs> which makes them yeah which inherently they're just humans with enhanced abilities which yeah. then puts them in the exact same category as like 
you know, things like as even though it's kind of removed, is like like the Avatar world, like with airbending mm. and all that. Those basically that there are normal people and then there are people with supernatural powers, and of course there's resentment between the two factions. Yeah, and, um, that exists obviously in a much more PG sense in that in that depiction. But <laughs> what I really like with the boys is yeah, it has that realism there. But for the most part, it's it's played for jokes and yeah. it has you do buy in. Um, but I was sitting there and, you know, I wanted to watch something, switch my brain off, not have like too intense a thing. And I was always curious with the, and I found out that, so I, I watched a animated DC film and I realized mm. Stan has like 30 of them. Oh, okay. So they're all and, sort of lumped on Stan. And I sort of was like, and apparently there are a couple that like are on Prime and, and Stan. And I was mm. just like, oh, there's so many of these. Like, where do you start? So then I read that there's this DC animated multi, like just like the rest of them. Sure. But the you know the MCU and stuff, the live act, the DCU, the DCEU. Live Aid by Queen. Um, there was a <laughs> period of time that runs from 2013 to 2020. There's a bunch of films that are canonically in that universe. And then there are standalones. So I watched a couple of standalones, which were... Um, and yes, it does look like, for someone who's been so critical of, of mm. superhero movies the, the the difference is these are way more authentic to their literature they're based off you know they're they're made by people that love the comics and yeah. to be honest well they, they, they they're they're retelling like page for page the comic book story as opposed to things like the mcu which which deviate for well, deviate for a more general audience for a low and cost, yeah, lowest common denominator. I, there was a really interesting thing that came up in the news in the last week, and which sort of relates to this conversation, where there were writers that actively went out and said that they hadn't read any of the books or played any of the games for the Witcher series. Ah, uh, yeah. And obviously, with you know the news with Henry Cavill leaving that and mm. being replaced by Liam Hemsworth, I remember sitting there going thinking to myself it's like i don't like this position where like i think a writer like like anything it's when a director takes on like a a novel adaptation you'd hope that they'd read the novel because at the end of the day it's the respect for the thing you're basing it off but it's this need that sometimes directors and writers want to be known as an alt like they wanted like their vision Mm. to come out not because it's better for the 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 actual product it's because they want their own unique stamp on it their unique voice mm. and their voice being heard is more important than just telling the story as it was yeah um, it's it's interesting because i i've read about this and, I, and it's not even just like a passive thing of they didn't read the source material it's they actively hate the source material which is that is bizarre to me because it's i feel like you could do one of two things with adaptations Neither of which is what they're doing. I mean, one is you're right. Create a very faithful, respectful adaptation, which is what, you know, I think HBO are doing with The Last of Us. You watch that trailer mm-hmm. and you're like, damn, this is like one-to-one visually in terms of the performances that they seem to be going for. It seems they're really, really, really trying to respect the the source material. And I know they're doing that for a lot of other things. That's just the first example that came to my head. Um, and then the other one is where you, you purposely go so out of your way to make something that is different, but is in itself a commentary on the original source material and a respect to the source material. And I think of the film adaptation, 
where it was meant to be based on a book and the film ended up being about the person who was hired to make a movie about the book and ends up being this like incredibly weird meta Kaufman-esque and it is written by Kaufman of course um reflection on the original story and it's so bizarre it's so interesting I feel like you could do one of those two things but what you can't do is just be like oh the original sucks I'm gonna do my own version of that same thing because that it just feels weird that feels weird yeah it feels like a need to be heard and you're Mm. just using the source material the fan base all that as a platform for your own selfish Mm. intent which is Look, I'm what you liked, or you liked that. Well, I'm going to give you something you're going to like more. Mm. And 99 times out of 100, it doesn't even come close. Yeah, because what they're not only disrespecting your source material, but you're disrespecting the audience that fell in love with that source material as well. They're like, all right, well, you watch this crap. So whatever I write, you're going to like this crap too, because it obviously can't be as bad as the original. That's the presumption. You can't help but think that when they say they don't like the source materials in the books and the games that The Witch is based on. Mm it feels like they're, you know, just throwing away the books and the games or dismissing them as, like, lesser forms of art. That You just can't help but think that when you read these articles. Yeah. And it, that just, it feels... Dis- and like you said, it's like they have the pre-established audience. It's like, okay, well, you're going to write this show full well knowing that it's going to have some level of success because you're going to have the audience from the source material automatically watching your thing. So don't be pompous and pretend like, your skill is the reason they're going to watch your show. Create something new mm. if you really want to prove yourself. Anyway, that's that's just the assumption I get from these no, headline articles. But yeah, yeah. So I elected to like start watching. So there was this this like I said, there's this universe where I was like, okay, I hate these live action ones. They feel really. They're at this point now where we you know we talked about She Hulk last week where. They're either so self-aware or they're tr- like they're trying to be like meta and mm. and stuff that we're just cringing at it most of the time, or like, they're trying to be like Deadpool or like even Deadpool. Most like people are fatigued by that, or or they've just they're falling flat to the point where now they've pulled everything back. So mm. clearly there's a reset happening, and they're really hoping I think that this this new Ant Man movie is going to be the one that gets everyone back in the door. It's like they're going to buy in again, and chances are they're probably won't yeah i've seen that trailer um, what reason is there to jump back yeah oh, look it's it's kang remember he was in loki yeah. who gives a shit anymore yeah. <laughs> so i was like okay well one thing i know is they've been making these sort of animation films long before these these expanded universe like the this animated universe is definitely a, a reaction but they've made these standalone films for for years mm. long like long before and I like animation, like I do. So I watched, um, I went through at first, oh, what's the best of these movies? Because right. there's like 30, where do I start? Like, So they were like, oh, we'll watch Batman Under the Red Hood, which is essentially mm. just Arkham Knight, the movie, if you've played the game. Well, yeah, I mean, Arkham Knight is. Yeah, yeah. So it's, the, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, that, so, it's funny because I've seen that one. That came, the Blu-ray of that Under the Red Hood came with my copy of Arkham City, which is very interesting. So that's how well, I watched that spoils, movie. It spoils the... It literally spoils the following game that, that came out four years later. It's a good <laughs> It's a good movie. Um, I like that story a lot. Um, I actually think the game tells it a little bit better. Um, oh, interesting. But okay. I know I'm not in the... the some people people just don't like I, Knight as much, but I, I think well, it's... I think the reason from memory is with Knight, they they swore on their mother's grave before the game came out, like, oh, it's, that's not that's not the Red Hood. 
that's not him. He's a new character we invented. And they just lied. Yeah. I mean, that's why I think people that have a sour taste on the Arkham Knight side of okay. things. Yeah. I didn't care for that much. Anyway. Um, and then I elected to watch... I'd heard about The Killing Joke, and I heard this was this big R-rated mm. one. That sucked. Yeah, I, I saw that when it came out as well, and it didn't care for it um, much. It was so, like, we got an R rating. And you know what the weirdest part was? I tell you, I watched... I'll talk about the other two in a sec, mm. but I watched them, and I thought they were, especially one of them, was, like, way more violent, but was only given an M rating. And then... Killing Joke, which I actually don't think is that violent. It's actually right. the sexual side that's clearly put the the rating up. Batman like, is s- but it's sex. the it's the, it's the it's basically all of the sadistic <laughs> side, which is clearly and yeah. you're like okay, well that's the American rating system at its finest, isn't it? It's like violence <laughs> and death is like fine. It's PG thirteen M. But as soon as there's like a bit of like any of that stuff, no, nah, go straight to R. And to be honest, mm. it's like. You know, I talk about this again. The once again, the the origin stories that came out in the video games, I thought were way better at telling this story than this animated feature did. Mm. Didn't offer anything particularly interesting. Gave us a bit of that Joker backstory. Didn't really care for it. Um, tries to show that weird dichotomy between the two characters and why they keep each other alive but don't actually ever kill each other and. Mm. This movie in particular, and then it's just little things like the whole idea of trying to corrupt Commissioner Gordon so he's beyond repair, but then he bounces back five minutes later, like like he got Scooby Dude. Like it's right. Well, it's, the idea is he never actually like tips over. That was my assumption for. Gordon. Yeah, but I guess it's odd because it's like then what is gonna tip <laughs> like tip over? Like it's yeah. that more a commentary on Gordon, like watching your. Like, daughter the, uh, be uh, abused, <laughs> like yeah. I don't. I mean, I'm guessing that's their idea of like, see, like good does prevail, and there and there are some people that aren't corruptible. I mean, the the Dark Knight covers a lot of that as well. Um, well, I probably will get around to it because so I watched. No, I'm talking, Red, about, I'm talking about Heath Ledger. Oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. But the, the, there's a little. I think there's a difference in that sequence in Dark Knight, which is so effective that you you do actually believe Gordon's going to shoot if. Like, he right. would shoot if Batman wasn't there mm. in that situation to save yeah. his kid. Like, um, in, you know, the dent standoff at the end. Oh, my God. How have we never done that film? I know. Show? I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> surely next countdown, I reckon. Um, oh, it's coming up. It's coming up. But, um, the and then the other two I watched. So, then I moved into this, okay, what's this animated universe? Mm-hmm. And I watched Batman Hush, which sits in the second, like it's in the second to third tier of this seven-year span. Okay. It was good. I watched it because it looked interesting. Um, kind of wish I'd watched them now in chronological order after watching the first one. But they, I think that they're linked, but then they're, they're loosely linked. They're right. not as linked as as like they're not as intrinsic interrelated as he as the ones like the MCU and the the DCU were, yeah. where you have to watch. This one, this one, and this one before you can watch this one. I think they're a little bit looser. A little more stand standalone. Sure. But a big shout out, honestly, out of the four I watched, and I, I, I feel like I've... What I like is, A, I think it's more true to the comics, The obviously the animated style. Mm. B, I think it understands... You get these more interesting, <laughs> diverse characters, 
which I think Nolan did really well um, with his, and I actually think you know Reeves has done really well with his depiction earlier mm. this year. There are exceptions to the rule, and actually, I like the DC universe way more than I like the Marvel universe. Mm. It's just we haven't been given that quality, and clearly, the quality was lying in its animated sector. Now, I know most of them are sitting anywhere between a three and a four. None of them are like over the like, crazy good, but. Um, Justice League Flash the Flashpoint Paradox that was sick that was okay. really cool that one was around it was basically it was around the Flash which you know I'm not I don't care for the Flash never watched <laughs> watched the show I accidentally stumbled onto the set he that's goes like, fast that's my fun oh that's flash. right in Canada um, yeah. when I was like 14 um, and but that's like that's about as far as it goes he, he's interested like they do a bit of origin stuff, and basically what happens is he goes through time and saves his mum, but because he saves his mum, the knock-on... Effect, it's a butterfly effect movie. Sure. Essentially. But there's Action really cool culture, things uh, where, where in this, this alternate <laughs> timeline, Bruce dies, but Thomas survives. Thomas Wayne oh, okay. survives. So, like, it's the older... But it ends up being this, this really good emotional bit where when... He gets Thomas writes a letter for Bruce when they go back to the original timeline and gives it to Bruce, and it's like this really like tender dad moment. And you're like, uh. it just hits. There's some really good emotional beats in it, um, but yeah, really violent for an M rated. I was like surprised. Like the Shazam kids get killed in it. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Those Shazam kids. Yeah. Oh, I have to share this funny exchange we're having because. Um, I was at Kirsty's the other night. Well, the the family were having dinner, and we were talking about you know Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, which we talked about in our Halloween it's on episode. On the British British Film Festival. Yeah, well, it's playing wide right now, mm-hmm. and Kirsty's mum was so enthusiastic to watch Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Yeah. Her and her girlfriends are all going to go on the Friday. Well, they would have gone by now. It does look like such was... a mum movie. Well, the the thing is, she wanted to go to the gold class. The girls wanted to go to the gold class. Sure, but of course, going to gold class, you get. 45 screenings of Black Adam instead, which led to a really funny conversation about how do you do a crossover film with Black Adam and Mrs. Harris? Is there, is there, a, is there an op- opportunity there for a franchise? Well, well, maybe Black Adam flies to Paris and he buys the dress for her. Yeah, I was going to say. Or yeah. maybe they both go dress shopping together. Yeah. And he's like sitting there like... Mm, and he yes. does the eyebrow thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it looks like I might have gone mad, but I don't know. They're they're actually no, kind of compelling. Them, if you enjoy them, it's great. They they're more akin to the the video games, which I did enjoy the video games a lot. Yeah, like, and I think it's such an interesting universe that just hasn't been capitalized in the live action, and because it's so now, it would be I mean, cool it, to see the Killing Joke that done correctly. Because I think you're right. I think I remember I watched that like as it came out because it was it was a big hype. Oh my god, we're gonna get a proper thing, and it's um you know Kevin's coming back to do Batman, and was it, it was Mark Hamill? Yeah. He came back. That they it's like oh my god, they they're coming back to do the Killing Joke. This is amazing. And then yeah, I think you're right. It kind of just honed too much in on the the artificial R rating side of it. Like oh look, yeah. they're gonna have sex, and like look how violent the Joker is. Look how messed up the story is. And they lean too much into that that it just kind of was like, uh Yeah, it, it really has no substance outside of that that realm of just look at us, we've got an R rating and we've got like it they had no 
substance or in, intrigue to it. And, you know, it, it sort of was like, look, I liked the the Joker, Joker that just, you know, the Joaquin Phoenix Joker film mm. well enough. It was, it was one of those films we walked out and went really good and then sat back a little bit and was like, oh, it was pretty good. Like, it wasn't like, I, mm. I think we... we, we teetered a little down like we cooled down on it and we sat back and went oh there was some cool things in there but it's one of those things every time you rewatch it you're like I kind of eh. yeah you, you appreciate the editing a little less you appreciate this thing a little less it's one of those films I think. and then you because you watch things like king of comedy or, or you know like taxi driver and these films that it's at times almost feels like it's plagiarizing it like it's <laughs> Very close to that um, side of it, and then it's like like we've I I think I even said on our episode where you've got characters that are so crazily like evil mm. and mean to Joaquin Phoenix's character that it's just like it's just kind of comical sometimes how right. how cruel the world is that Gotham is, and it's like I, I it's funny because then you don't you feel that a little bit in Nolan's Batman, but. Like, people, it's still a place you can live. There's still enough there to live for. Like, right. it's still a good enough city. Whereas, like, in in um, Phillips's, like, Gotham, it's just depressing. Like, why is anyone living here at yeah. all? It's, you well, literally... I, th- I think it works for that because it's funny. I was watching a video recently about Blonde, which hit the nail on the head for me in terms of just, like, the misery side of it. And it's, like, it's a little 13 reasons why. I swear. It, everything is so miserable... Because it feels like it's just trying to convince the audience of why the protagonist killed themselves by the end of the film or the show or whatever it is. You know, the same with Blonde. Like, oh, well, why did Marion Monroe uh, kill herself? We have to, we have to, we, and the audience needs to know. Yeah. So we're just going to show two and a half hours of just how miserable her life is. It just doesn't feel, it, it's just like unbelievable. Yeah. And I, th- I think for Gotham and, and Joker, I. I think because so many of the themes revolve revolved around the mob mentality and like that people were fed up of it and then the political side of it there where, you know, Wayne calls everyone clowns and they're dressing up as clowns to revolt against the guy. I think because there's enough of those elements in there, I don't mind that it just like feels like everything mm. sucks. As opposed to something like Blonde where I think because it's it's centralized to that one character. Yeah. Just everything everywhere was horrible to her all the time until she died. It's like, come on. Mm. Like, that's that's ridiculous. And, and to be honest, you know, we talked about with, with Reeves as Batman, like, it would be nice to get, um, you know, we wanted to see more Bruce Wayne in it because we got not as much Bruce Wayne in that Batman film. And Wayne, which uh, one? In the the one that just came out, the Batman. Oh, right. Oh, I You know, because it, was a, very, it was a very Batman-heavy film, but it's mm. like we talked about that film being like, oh, we want to see a bit more of Bruce and we want to see that... That, that double, like, both lives, that perfect mm. balance. And it's okay. Like, you want to do a complete Batman film, that's fine. But the next film, I think, needs to have more of the exploring the Bruce side of things. Cause sure. Because we didn't quite get that. It's good we didn't have to do an origin film. We didn't need to see the mm. backstory again. We went right into him being it. It ticks a lot of boxes. And it'll be really interesting what this, uh, what is this, Joker, what's it called? Something French. It's uh, yeah, blue. I can't remember what it's called, but, yeah, the Lady Gaga, the musical version. I'm generally very excited for that. I think it's gonna be great. So it's a, it's a lady. So it's like a lady, musical. Lady Gaga is gonna play Harley Quinn, and it's a flat-out musical. The whole movie. The movie's a music. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. It's a bit different. I reckon it's gonna be great. Cause yeah, it's different. It's been a while. I can do this all day. <laughs> uh, it's like stuff. the highlight of Hawkeye. 
Right. <laughs> oh, Hawkeye. Uh, when he's watching the musical version of the Avengers. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They did that. They did that like a Marvel nerd convention thing. They did a... They redid that stage play. That's cool. That's good. That's cool. I hope they got paid more than two cents <laughs> to do that. But the Flashpoint Paradox was good. And I cool. will continue to watch until I... Until you get die. bored, pretty much. Okay. It was there. What makes them great are they they count as feature films on my list, oh my and they're seventy <laughs> minutes long. So I'm now up to 106 films this year. Oh lord, what am I up work to? Work smart, right not hard. Yeah, to, towards the 365 list, up to 84. But someone might include miniseries, so that that's a whole lot of extra minutes in there. But it's fine. Yeah. Well, in terms of career updates. I showed a TVC, Zeke. I know, you actually... A television commercial yeah. for the normies. You, I was going to say, can you talk about uh, <laughs> details for that? Or oh, I'm sure I can. I mean, it's for it's for the Sunshine FM radio station. Nice little Christian wholesome radio station. But it was cool because it was... Uh, so at first, it was Damien who you know, uh, directed it, sort of co-produced it with Carmel and, and all that. Um, obviously shot it, is going to edit it, doing the whole thing there. A second AC on a production with no sound recordings. My job was absolutely piss easy. Mm. <laughs> so Just one day of work. Yeah, it was a. Uh, it was meant to be nine hour day, and we finished two hours early. So it was pretty good. It's a, for a thirty second commercial, the TV ad. So, but it was cool because it was just that atmosphere of. First off, I wasn't on the gaffing side of the team, so when they had to change the backdrops every five seconds from green screen mm. to a white backdrop to like a raspberry pink red backdrop to, to blue i didn't have to do any i mean it helped but like i wasn't obligated i was like, i'll just steal with the camera make sure no one's gonna <laughs> kick the camera um but that that was fun and just like having the music on so all the kids were excited and dancing to their favorite i don't know what's going on with kids music taste these days but um pretty much every song you hear on the radio has like a child-friendly version of it now that's what i learned no oh, there you that's go what i learned on the set no but it was fun because it was I think it's going to start it with this like animation of, um, like a radio, an old radio, um, like a portable radio station thing. And then a laptop comes and smashes it to pieces, and then it goes to sort of like a, it's like a Kmart ad where people are sort of smiling and dancing and throwing confetti with the backdrop behind them, and it, it was it was nice. It's got my first television commercial. It's always good cool. to have one on there. Yeah. So yeah. And it's only and it's only one day of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a seven nice. hour, and done and dusted. Beauty. I don't have to edit it. Thank the Lord. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that would, imagine that would be I'm, a lot. I'm so sick of editing, man. I can't. I know. I just, I can't. Because I, that used to be my thing. Like, I've edited since I was, what, like seven, eight years old. Yeah. On the old iMovies and Windows Media Player and all that stuff. I think uh, just the last, like, year or two, I just struggle. doesn't matter what it is, whether I love it or I'm not really into it. Mm. It might have been, it might have been cloud to be honest. It just like turned editing into like this just massive chore. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I'm getting better at being on sets in terms of my attitude. Yeah, I'm not just counting down the hours. Although if you are on time, don't don't keep telling your director how ahead of schedule you are because your your PA is not going to like that. <laughs> Jake, stop telling him that that he's running good on time. <laughs> He's going to slow down and get lazy. <laughs> uh, fun no times. dramas. Well, I don't have any news to talk about on the show. Well, on the show. Uh, you got some great news. Yes. Potentially, mm. I'll have news in a couple of weeks. But, 
yeah, we'll see how we go. Fair enough. Before we get there, though, it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted, followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. As Kay Billy's super sounds of the 70s weekend just keeps on trucking. Botch robbery indicates a police informant, and the pressure mounts in the aftermath at a warehouse. Crime begets violence as the survivors, veteran Mr. White, newcomer Mr. Orange, psychopathic Paralee Mr. Blonde, bickering weasel Mr. Pink, and nice guy Eddie unravel. What about Mr. Brown? Yeah. He did lots. He did. He talked about Madonna and then he got shot in the head. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he directed the film. <laughs> and Mr. Blue, who dies off screen. Mr. Blue. Or Mr. Mr. Blue. Mr. What did you say, Mr. Lou? Mr. Lou. <laughs> I know, Mr. Blue. I was, I was, what? I was like, where is Mr. Blue? I was like, he's just, he's just like not in the film. Yeah, gets his uh, intro, and then uh, that's all. He, he gets a good, he gets a goodbye. I mean, this is basically a Manas Tarantino version edition. <laughs> I, I mean, stage f- play. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, hey, you talk about budgetary constraints. I mean, what a way to, what a way to do that in terms of building a heist film almost entirely around the heist. And um, I mean, the structure of this film is like a huge part of its charm, in a lot of ways. Mm. Not only from the budgetary standpoint, but just in terms of telling the audience, you know, don't just get hyped for your heist moment. It's not necessarily everything's building to a heist moment. It's all it's everything that's surrounding it. It's about, I guess, honor among thieves and criminals and how criminals humanize and dehumanize those around them. That's kind of the vibe I got from the second viewing. I, I don't really... I'm trying to remember what I thought on my first viewing. It's tough because I watched this for the first time in June of 2019, which puts us at around episode mm. 22, 23, so around... Thunder Road, Toy Story 4 territory for the podcast. Yeah. But I, I listened to both of those. I kind of just quickly skipping through Jack's on both those episodes, by the way. I swear to God, I must have just forgot to talk about this film because I couldn't find any trace of me talking about this film back then, which triggers me a little. So we're going to do it right now, Zoe. We're going to make yeah. up for it. That's totally fair. <laughs> what's, uh, your, what's your history? When's the first time you saw this? When, how's, how many times have you seen this? I'd say this would be like early, early film degree. Would probably oh be really the time wow. I'd uh, watch this film. I, I, obviously, I wasn't really into the Tarantino stuff probably until post high school. I think okay. Um, I've still never seen the Kill Bills. Haven't seen Death Proof. Um, 
And I'm the only one that's going to go off at you for that. No one cares. <laughs> no one cares about death proof. <laughs> and I, I've now gone on to like, yeah, watch everything but those those three films. Sure. And I remember watching this film, this film and Pulp Fiction within a pretty sh- small window, mm. and going, "Wow, I enjoyed Reservoir." I think I watched Pulp Fiction first and thought well, that was pretty good, but then watched Reservoir Dogs and really enjoyed it. And I think what I liked about it is, like you said, it's the it's kind of the the uh, aspiring filmmakers' dream film. It's a bunch of guys in yeah. suits talking about Robin and being cool, and the music, the soundtrack's really cool, and it sort of has that. I mean, it has that '90s charm that something like Train Spotting has. Mm. That although it's like. You know, train spotting has its those really low, heavy moments. Most of the time, it's it's kind of enti- it's showing you the enticingness, the appeal of you know doing heroin and and mm. and, and living this sort of like living by day by day life. And I don't think it celebrates drug. It doesn't celebrate drug use overtly, nor should it. But it's one of those things where it's like you know you watch this this film, this Reservoir Dogs, and and it's it is very enticing and very um compelling it's like it makes it's the oceans uh, 11 style but it's not as like fantastical as as oceans 11 it's mm. it's way more grounded and realistic it's a bunch of guys um uh robbing a bank and dressing smart while walking down the street and it's like i think it's you know obviously we get introduced to the the tarantino dialogue delivery this quick smart dialogue delivery which i think because of the time we had actually gone away from that i mean the only time we ever saw quick pacey dialogue you can tell he really loves is scorsese Mm. um who was someone who was probably the only one at the time doing just as quick dialogue but it was and this film clearly does it does feel like a very talented film students film right um and someone who clearly loves movies. But it's also, because of its location and its budgetary constraints, it shares commonalities with some of these stage play dramas that existed in the 50s and the 60s. Mm. These these 12 Angry Men situations where you have characters situated in one room. Not We, ha- we don't see the murder in 12 Angry Men. We just hear them talking about it and how mm. how is that compelling how is that interesting yeah yeah yet we that film's fantastic and well, i think you hit the nail on the head the reason it's compelling is because it's it's the character drama yeah and it's 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 what the characters are saying to each other and how they're convincing each other of things it's not about the heist or in, in the case of that film it's not about the crime that's committed because it's almost not really important i i think for here it's so great because like you said the characters are all suave and cool and your know, Ocean's Eleven in- comparison is interesting because, like, they're such different films, but yeah. I'm also kind of struggling to argue the difference between them in terms of making a heist cool. This one's obviously a lot more ultra-violent, uh, and there's violence against police. There's overt racism in the film. We could talk about that soon. But in terms of glorifying it, it's it, it's so gritty and realistic at the same time, and even just, like... Mm. I was going to make a joke. I'm not going to make the joke. I was going to say there's a, there's a continuity error in the film, Zeke, where Tim Roth's shirt is, is white, and then after the heist, it's red. And <laughs> No, but it's like even just like the level of blood and the 
the the uncomfortable level of violence, yeah. like police officers being shot at, and like obviously the the torture scene with the ear being kind of like none of it's pretty to look at, but it's still such a cool movie that you just kind of would be inspired by it. I That's think what I like about this film and why I draw, obviously, you know, he's talked about some of his biggest influences were the sort of the spaghetti westerns mm. of, of yesteryear, the, the Sergio Leone's, the, um, oh, I'm forgetting his other, I'm going to get this up now, otherwise it's going to drive me up. Film starring Clean Eastwood. <laughs> God, I literally watched a documentary on him earlier this year too. The one that Tarantino really enjoys. Um, but, you know, and you can see that, that in there, and obviously you can see the, the even the Scorsese influence of, of the 20 years that, I mean, obviously it's Mean Streams came out in 72, this comes out in 92. Mm. That's 20 years of, of a younger Tarantino watching these films, these quicker, pacier dialogues, these gangster, gangster dramas. Yeah. Um, and that definitely ties into... Um, some of the influence there. I think he's really trying to not just like imitate that, but to create his own identity, this quick fire dialogue, witty dialogue, smart dialogue. It's, it's not as mobster driven as, as the stuff like what Scorsese does, but there's there that level of intellect and wit or the talking about nothing, but it still has I think, substance. I think that's more important is is the the seemingly nothing conversations that we had because you look at the opening scene again, it's Madonna songs, it's it's sort of a Tarantino inserting himself in this very top gun is is about homosexuality esque conversation about the song. But then even the tipping culture and I think a lot of that doesn't serve the plot of the film in any way, shape or form. You could obviously have this film continue without the opening scene. But what it does, what the, the stroke of genius of it is that it's making you relate to these criminals, mm. these people that are doing horrible, violent, illegal things that most people, including us watching this film, wouldn't really think to do or wouldn't be inclined to do. But we're relating to them because the conversations they're having are so sort of mundane and I don't want to say meaningless, but but there is an element of that to it. And I think that's what's scary is... Scary, I don't know if that's the right word. But yeah, we relate to these characters. I think that's sort of what that scene achieves. And in in terms of its wider impact on Tarantino's filmography, this isn't the director's corner. Um, we did Pulp Fiction way back in episode 30. Yeah. That's our director's corner there. But watching this scene, especially in hindsight of knowing where his career trajectory went from there, the fact that he's the first, Tarantino is the first person to speak in this line, and I know he wanted to originally play Mr. Pink before Steve Buscemi came in and, and basically took the role from him. But originally, those lines about Madonna's uh, Like a Virgin was going to be the Mr. Pink character saying that. So either way, this film was always going to start with Tarantino being the first line. Mm. And the combination of that um, with just how important and seemingly non-sequitur the scene is, the fact that you're right, we see further diner scenes in later films like Pulp Fiction and that, um, and just the way it perfectly leads into a uh, little green bag with the, you know, a film by Quentin Tarantino. It's just, in hindsight, it's just so, it feels important. It kind of feels like the first scene of Iron Man was like, mm. wow, look what this turned into, this big wider MCU thing. Except for here, it's just a guy's filmography. But it kind of has that same feeling of like, wow, this is where things began. And it all, it all ticks, you know, it all, mm. it all checks out. 
Sergio Cabucci. Ah, oh, there you go. Yeah. Sergio, either way. <laughs> Leone or Cabucci. Um, but yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. And it's one of those things where, like you said, this isn't a director's corner, but you do see the blueprint, the trajectory of this mm. career, and, and you can see all of these Tarantino-isms that have now become iconclastic and not just his own repertoire, but so many younger filmmakers love his mm. films because they have that... Uh, particularly this film has a very juvenile resonance to it. it mm. You know, teen a teenage boy would love to watch this film. It's violent. There's edgy swearing. That's what surprised you hadn't seen it earlier. That yeah. we both saw this for the first time at, in uni. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's an all male cast mm. and, you know, you're, you know, you're an adolescent boy. That's like, you know, you a lot of it's like cool crime stuff. It's kind of the same reason that sort of eighties Scorsese is so appealing, or at least films like Goodfellas are really appealing to mm. to to younger men because it's like the it's the mob movie, it's the quintessential <laughs> mafia movie. I'm doing the Italian uh, gesture, but um, I think he, obviously I actually reckon Tarantino is way more accessible to younger years in the, its appeal than a Scorsese is. Mm. I think Sc- Scorsese has way more prolific and heavier subject matter, can make it... It's a tough. It's a tougher gateway entry. It's sort of like why Tarantino and Wes Anderson are some of the most accessible filmmakers to watch, or Edgar Wright would be in that same category. Mm. All doing different things. Right. All have completely different methodologies for it. But they're like the young people directors. They're mm. the directors that young adolescent filmmakers and filmgoers really like to watch. Yeah. Well, there's an essence of, of coolness to all of those films. And I think the key difference between this and Goodfellas in terms of their directorial styles is that I think this appeals more to teens because it is like almost grotesque and kind of going out of its way. Yeah to be cool with the violence and as like Goodfellas like there's there's an element of cool to that film as well but you're right it's taking itself a little more seriously it's taking its themes more seriously and, um, and we've come to expect that now of Tarantino films we'll go in and we're, we're, we're basically waiting for the absurd violent shoe to drop mm. like there are some films where it, it's a bit more overt you know when you're going into Hateful Eight it's like it's it's a bit more peppered out yeah. Um, whereas then you watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you have to wait till like the last fifteen minutes of the film to get to the point where you're you're convinced, like, oh, it's actually not going to happen this time. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, and I can tell, like, I know for a fact of uh, the premise of Death Proof or Kill Bill. It's obviously it's always like in the title, you know, that the, there's going to be violence. <laughs> I mean, one of them's an ode to the classic kill. slasher seventies and eighties films, and the Grindhouse, stuff, the Grindhouse yeah. stuff. Yeah, and so it's what makes. And I mean, to its credit, this film um, is once again it does have those those really huge, grotesque, violent periods of time, and is a is a model example of of financial limitations and finding workarounds. And um, you know, it's a, a very simple premise for a film: a heist goes wrong, one of them's a cop, and it's trying to work out who the cop is. And mm. you know, it's like with something like Twelve Angry Men, it's it's 12 men trying to figure out a 12 jury members trying yeah. to figure out the verdict by deconstructing a case. And what they're doing is deconstructing what went wrong. Where, where did the, where did it happen? And, and we're, you know, we're being 
told in this chapter format, which is mm. such a for its time, it's such a unique using the title cards, um, using such a unique storytelling, which you've actually you see a lot now. Um, you know, a like lot of a lot of independent films. Well, yeah, the non-linear narrative, but the I, I was talking more about the cutaway to the title card, Mister White, Mister Pink. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. These ones, whereas now we see chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and sometimes yeah, it's like it's... only in there for the the sake of it. it yeah, really I was say, uh, the worst person in the world. Brilliant, brilliant film, but I never understood why it had to be told in twelve chapters. It, it was I just I didn't understand that. But here, it kind of. What I like about it here is because it's almost like a bit of a checklist of if you're trying to figure out who the rat is, it almost feels like a bit of a checklist of, um, you know, you start, well, you obviously start with Mr. White and kind of get his backstory. You're watching that, and you're like, okay, well, this is how he's introduced. This is how he knows you know, Joe. And mm. he's almost kind of like the Leonardo of the Ninja Turtles of the group, with, you know, um, Joe being Master Splinter, if you will. Uh, which goes into his more emotional spouts. We'll get into those soon. But then you go into Mr. Blonde. You kind of learn more about his relationship with Joe and Nice Guy Eddie. And it's it's quite interesting. And, and not only does it feel like that checklist, so by the time that you actually get to Mr. Orange, you're like, oh, okay, now this is cool. We're going to see the other side of this and what, what the preparedness mm. of the rat looks like. But when we get to that final confrontation... All those flashbacks come together so that when Nice Guy Eddie has like his big monologue, where he's like, "I don't believe what you're saying about Mister Blonde," you you know where that's all coming from because you've seen these flashbacks. Yeah. But then, from a budgetary standpoint, it's a good way to mix up the film that would otherwise just be completely set in a warehouse, much like you know Twelve Angry Men would be. So I think it kind of has a nice solution for all of those, as well. No, I think I think the the nonlinear structures. Excellent. It's almost jarring when they do have these big action scenes when like Mr. Pink's getting chased down uh, the street and there's gunfire going off and uh, you can actually see the boom operator in, in one of the uh, reflection windows. <laughs> All the reflections in the window. Classic. Classic. Gotta love it. Um, it almost is jarring when the film gets that exciting and that um, intense and, and that action-packed because you're so engrossed by everything in between it, which is just scenes of dialogue, scenes mm. of characters yelling at each other. What's with Harvey Keitel being in these indie indie darling films? He just oh, seems in to the be early nineties. You know, we're talking about <laughs> goes from this this and the piano within a year. Yeah, uh, he's a good man. Well, he's he is a quintessential part to this film because not only is he obviously you know one of the lead actors in it. If it wasn't for him, this film would have been on a sixteen thousand dollar budget, shot in black and white sixteen millimeter with Tarantino and his mates. It would have been any different from any of the films mm. that we've shot together. And he came in. I actually wrote this down because the connection is fascinating. You always joke about how, you know, these um, directors on their first outing get these major players. We talked players. about See How They Run, where we've got Rockwell, Saoirse Ronan, Adrian Brody. <laughs> and you're like, ooh. In the director's corner, yeah. Well, it turns out it was... So Tarantino's uh, producer, and he actually gets one of the main title cards of the opening film, Lawrence Bender. It is his action class teacher's wife who got the script in the hands of Harvey Keitel, who then approached Tarantino and said, not only do I want to be in the film, but I want to help produce it, thus raising the budget up to $1.5 million. Now, Zeke, mm. I have a list of fun facts, not just the one that we had each at the start of the show, Yeah, bunch of fun facts all related to the film's budget. The best, the best. 
Surprised if it's, is there a documentary out there about this, or is it just the the Tarantino Eight? I've heard is yeah that that definitely covers quite a bit of it. Um, I forgot there's a sh- he made a short film. He made a short film Reservoir Dogs. Yes, that this is of course based on. I completely forgot about that. Probably should have watched that as well today, but eh, I've seen it before. I just haven't seen it in a while. I don't. You're right. It would be the the Tarantino Eight or um. The the QT eight what what's yes. it called yeah something like that the documentary I think it's just on YouTube shouldn't be too hard to find um, but yeah <clears throat> in terms of facts related to the film's low budget like we've been saying you know with the heist of course we don't actually see the heist itself and of course that started out as a initially a budgetary constraint but Tarantino has come on to say that he actually likes the idea of not showing it because it um, basically forces the audience to focus on other details that mm. aren't related to just the excitement of a heist in general. Uh, you had a lot of the cast either borrowing things or using their own things, including wardrobe, vehicles. So you got Mr. Blonde's Cadillac that actually belonged to Michael Madsen, who um, I, guess, I guess the budget couldn't... They couldn't just rent a car, so we had to use his own car on set, which that's pretty common for us like yeah. on our own on our own shoots. Just use each other's cars, you know? Well, yeah. It is always one of those things that unless you're specifically looking for a certain type of car, and, it like, if most of us, it's like they're just middle-class characters, well... Right. Middle-class cars do the job, don't they? I mean... That's... Yeah, exactly. But yeah. then you got Mr. Blonde. It's like, oh, okay, well, he's got to drive a Cadillac. You know what I mean? I've always loved that about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, that the attention they put into each character's cars just... It's a I mean, we have to say that a lot of these actors were no mm. were no names going in, so it's you know this for them it was obviously it was a buy in for a different reason. They were mm. much like like you said, Kaitel was the is the actually the draw card of this cast mm. at this time because Buscemi, Madsen, Roth, none of them are, are names at this point. Um, they're much like in the same boat as well, very similar to you know. 20 years earlier when you've got Scorsese with De Niro or you've got um, Spielberg with, I guess, like, Hoff, not Hoffman. Um, how am I forgetting this now? Dreyfus. Dreyfus, right. Probably Dreyfus. Like, it's, you know, it's the same sort of, they just have their associate actors. Well, I think, I think the consistency, it's not even just Cartel, but pretty much the entire cast were like, taking pay carts and doing all sorts of things and, you know, like, Super Jimmy's wearing his own pants, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, they're all in it because they just damn love the script. Yeah. And it's it shows. It shows and it's clearly a positive so work environment, too. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be a big part of it, too. That it's, like you said, it's a testament to script. It's probably a testament to the way he works as a director because mm. it's a lot of faith to put in such a bottle film... That's, mm. you know, that's very challenging. That's very performance-driven. Yeah. And that's a lot of buy-in. If you're an actor, from an empathetic point of view, you're getting... If you're in the position of a Buscemi or, or a Madsen or a Roth, you're getting a lot of room to actually act, to perform. That producers, future producers, can watch and see your range and potential because mm. the fluctuation in emotions over the course of the whole film is huge. Mm. Like we see them pre-heist when they're all calm, cool, suave. Yeah. Post heist, freaking out, hysterical. Like it's, it's full range. I mean, they I mean, Tim Roth's like breakdown in the second. Like as soon as you see him shot, like is just phenomenal. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, I think, and I think that's that's the the take and give with Tarantino is that I know he is a bit of a hard ass, and it's like I think in more recent productions he won't let people have phones, and he has sort of they play pranks on each other if they are caught sleeping on set and things like that. I think he's a bit of a hard ass, but he gives actors materials to just chew on. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what everyone is drawn to from a performance standpoint. We, I think a really, though this is not a director's corner, but a testament to this film and then its knock-on effect is the retention of cast members over the course of future films. The fact that we see Roth come back on multiple different sets, that mm. we see um, Madsen come back on multiple different sets. Uh, what's yeah. interesting is that this is the only Keitel film. The Harvey Keitel. He doesn't appear in any other oh, no, Tarantino no. He's film. in Pulp Fiction. Is he? I'm pretty sure he plays the wolf. Okay, so he appears in the, the, the preceding one. Yeah. Yeah. So on those two back-to-back. Oh, no, he's in Glorious Bastards as well. Look at that. Oh, there you go. So he does make a couple. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. There you go. He's also in the Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom and Isle of Dogs. Yeah, he's got a couple of uh, Wes Andersons. Yeah, and then Mean Streets, Irishman, and Taxi Driver, some Scorsese. <laughs> Name dropped quite a few times. Today. Yeah. But it is interesting. The retention of, of of actors is probably a testament to they are real good opportunities for actors to shine and they're actor centerpieces. You know, we talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and, you know, that's that's three characters, uh, three actors that are getting just, well, particularly Brad Pitt and DiCaprio are basically just getting two and a half hours of let's see their whole range yeah. from psychotic to like chilled vibes <laughs> like yeah there's that but then it's also layered on you're right like the the very specific dialogue very specific yeah cool delivery absolutely that everyone has it's great and it even plays into like what i would call very bold pacing because it's not just that we're going back and forth and excuse me back and forth in terms of the timeline but when you see a film like this that starts out with everyone calm collected cool you know, riffing and goofing and joking around. Talking about tipping. Tipping, yeah, exactly. But then, you know, as things get more intense and the emotions are driving up, you would imagine that the film is sort of this, you know, downward trajectory in terms of calm to just complete chaos and panic. But the film doesn't really do that, and it's because we have so many of these flashback scenes Mm. that there are scenes, especially when, you know, Tim Roth gets into the car, and I think they're on the way to the meeting where they actually all get their, their code names, so to speak. They're just goofing and mucking around and talking about TV shows. And it's like, there's only 20 minutes left in the film. I think it's really bold to just have that level of pacing where... And Pulp Fiction does it really well. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does it really well. Like where It's the humanizing side, though. Mm. Like, it's... What makes it so interesting in all those films is how compelling his protagonist characters are. In, well, not all of them, because I know Death Proof kind of takes an alternative route but if you look at um these characters and or even like hafe weight like he's willing to he basically is such a character focused director like the characters he writes and he directs and constructs mm. they're so driven like this in this one it's very it definitely feels very mono focused like characters don't feel as complex as they are in other films because you know you've got this up-and-coming, you know, undercover cop. Right. And basically he just wants to do his job and gets, and he's a little bit of a hothead, but, and then learns how to, like, basically speak the language. And mm. 
That's know, great when he's like rehearsing the lines yeah. and multiple takes. And it works really well. And and you do like Roth's character. And when he gets shot and he's bleeding out and he's giving mm. that testament, you feel bad because, you know, there's a young man at the end of his life. And that sequence at the end and that Mr. White genuinely buys into, foregoes his professionalism and really gets emotionally attached. And you actually do buy into these characters. And... Mr. Blonde, you actively fear because mm. of, you know you watch this this stuck in the middle with you scene, yeah. yeah, which is just pure dynamite to create this absolute monster of a character, this absolute wild card, this unpredictability, and yet then Tarantino has the audacity to yeah do that cutaway scene where we see him and nice guy Eddie getting along like they're they're the best of mates (laughs) and this monster's now taken off that super monster pedestal and now it's like oh well they've got a really like a really nice relationship like Mm. he's a psycho he's a sociopath but it it, like you said it's the stakes in the scene and it's that we're waiting for the bloody shoe to drop Mm. and well i think i yeah i think there's i think there is a lot of dimensionality to these characters because they you got, you know, look at Mr. White, where it's like, okay, like I said, he's sort of the Leonardo group leader here. But like you said, he's the one that's sort of prone to not dropping the facade, but the emotionality of it, where he is revealing his real name to Tim Roth. And he is the one that is so connected to him that he goes up against Joe and ends up in this Mexican standoff just to protect who is a cop, who is a rat. So I think he's the one that's susceptible to it despite his leadership role. And then you've got Steve Buscemi, who's we're kind of, I guess, prone to dislike him at first because of the whole tipping rant that he goes on. Um, I mean, there's, there's enough grey in that area. But then he's the one that keeps ratting off about um, professionalism. And it's even in these little moments where Mr. Blonde says, you know, are you going to keep barking, little doggy, or are you actually going to bite? And it just cuts back and with him in the background just shaking his head. And again, it just goes back to that sense of professionalism. So I, I like that there's always these... He's the one who ends up surviving. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and he, he's the only one that survives, which is... Because there's that preservation side too. Yes, yes. And he is the first one to be like, no, 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 Mr. White, don't tell me your name. Like, we, even though the shit is at the fan, we're still sticking to these names. Because you're right, the self-preservation, through all of it, he's just out to save himself. And that's why when he's running away from the cops on the street, he's by himself. He's not with anyone else. So I think there's a lot of reinforced ideas between these characters. I also think I think Mr. Blue's easily the most fleshed out character in the film. <laughs> but do you tip? But do you tip? Exactly. Yeah, but then there's also the the overall mentality had between the differences between them, the whole honor among thieves and criminals, then civilians and then cops. And specifically when it's pretty early on when and when mm. Mr. White and Mr. Pink are talking about, did you end up like killing anyone? And he's basically saying, like, you know, between killing a couple of cops and getting ten years in the slam, you know, of course I'm gonna do that. And he says, I didn't kill any real people though. Only a couple of cops. Which is interesting how they sort of dehumanize cops by saying they're not real people. And that in turn reflects when Tim Roth's telling his fake story about the cops in the bathroom. And how the cops are dehumanizing the civilians that they're putting guns to. But then that's Tim Roth's way of getting into the mob circle. Yeah. And I just thought that was really cool that that was reinforced over and over again throughout the film. Very polarizing, isn't it? Which mm. it makes interesting when you look at The Departed and how mm. how 
we have that relationship between cops and criminals in, in that particular film and yeah. how ambiguous it is. <laughs> um, real socio-economic commentary there by uh, um, Scorsese. But then you've also got Tim Roth. He's the only one that does kill a civilian. Yeah. Mm. Very grey. I also noticed he barely speaks during the diner scene, but the first time we see him on camera clearly speaking, um, like without not within the group, is when he's ratting out on Mr. Pink being the one to not give a tip. So I thought that was a nice little nice little clever thing they, they planted in there. <laughs> Do you have anything else you'd like to touch on before we go into highlight scenes? Yeah, I'm going to read off some of more of these uh, low-budget fun facts, cool. if you will. With Jake. Fun facts with Jake. The low budget. So because the budget was so low that they couldn't cover police assistance for traffic traffic control... In the scene where seeing uh, Steve Buscemi, oh my god, I can't speak, forces a woman out of a car and drives off in it. He could only do so when the traffic lights were green. <laughs> you also have the apartment, uh, Mr. Orange's apartment, where he's up there and he grabs the ring from the bowl of coins yeah. and that. That is literally just the upstairs area to the warehouse. And hey, you can save a lot of money by dressing one location to two. Very, Very smart, isn't it? Yeah. You mentioned Stuck in the Middle a few earlier. Apparently, the entire soundtrack's budget was spent on that one song, which is crazy. That's a bold move. Yeah, that's a lot of faith. Yeah. Why? Well, I honestly reckon they could have got away with it as well if there was no other source music in the film. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. I think it really goes to show, though, how effective one... When it, when a director's fixated on one song, sometimes mm. it's worth going out like after it. You know, it's the Thunder Roads of the world. Where yeah, yeah. It really does elevate it, and then by the time you get around to the feature, it's it's a shame that we never get to hear that version again. Sure, yeah. Um, at some point in the film, because it's arguably why I would still say the short film is better than the feature film mm. in that particular instance. So it'd yeah. be really interesting to sit down and watch the. Uh, short film of this and what scene they address mm, that's not a bad idea actually yeah do that comparison there yeah or even like pop fiction i think like for me the number one song in that film would be girl you will be a woman i think that's i don't know if that's the exact title of it but for me that's like the even though there's so many other great songs in that film that's like the the one the dance one I, yeah where she's dancing to it in the right before she bloody sniffs up it she thinks it's coke but it's heroin that's what yeah. it is isn't it yeah that for me, like that's like the one song that solidifies that film. Um, for the rest of the songs in this, um, what would you call it? in the film, I think they relied on um, making record deals for the soundtrack. That's how they got pretty much every other song in this film, which is crazy. And also, fun fact: that Tarantino put the dialogue in the soundtrack of the movies and mixed it in with a lot of the music, which I think really paid off. And he kind of does it again in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because. He has the 60s radio ads mixed in between the songs on that soundtrack. Mm. So, ah, nice little... Playing in your car, okay? Always playing my car. Except my new car that doesn't have a CD player. No. Very sad. That's very sad. I am very sad about that. Well, Jake, mm. what's your highlight scene? I... Oh, God. This is a tough... This is a great, This is a great scenes in this film. I elected to talk about two scenes slash moments that you know we talked about Tarantino's directorial trademark all over mm-hmm. this film things that are in this film that are in every other film of his continuing onwards 
There were two scenes, two moments that I watched. I was like, this feels very un-Tarantino-esque. Okay. Which I thought was quite interesting. The first one is pretty early on. Mr. White and Mr. Pink are having this argument. Tim Roth sort of dying in the corner. And then as Mr. Pink's sort of rambling in the background, we have this slow camera push-in on Mr. White as he's sort of pondering over what to do uh, with Mr. Orange. And I, just, I was like, yeah, this kind of... I can't think of any other Tarantino film that kind of slows down and it's like the dialogue is almost an afterthought. Just in this 20-second shot they were pushing in on Harvey Keitel. I was like, that's a really cool little moment. And the other one would be when Mr. Orange is talking about the fake story of the police officers in, in the bathroom. But not only is he sort of, like we said, he's like pretend acting or he's yeah. play acting. He's, he's you know reading his lines and doing the performance. Now he's doing performance for the gangsters. But then it cuts to the fake story in the bathroom. Yeah. Where he's actually verbally saying the things that he's describing having felt in that moment. I was like, that is very un-Tarantino-esque. Because it's very... Um, first off, that, that scene doesn't surrealistic. exist. It's surrealistic. It's surrealistic, yeah. Yeah, it is very odd. Because all of Tarantino is told in the moment. Yes. Wacky things happen. Yes. But everything is contemporary narrative. Like, like With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's... You know, we watch the whole sequence of, of Brad Pitt going to the compound. Mm. We watch the Dalton performance. And when they go to Italy, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a skip over. Yeah. But it's still chronological. It's like so strange to have this this surrealistic experience in, mm. a, in a Tarantino film where he's acting it out. Almost, it feels like you know, it feels Wes Anderson esque, or it right. feels, um, God, I couldn't even think. Even Danny Danny Boyle esque, um, with early you know train spotting and stuff like mm. that sort of surrealism where it's like this thing didn't happen, but he's trying to teach it like. It's such an interesting, surrealistic montage. Yeah, I can't think of any other Tarantino scene where we not only see a scene that's been described that we know is not true, that did not happen, but that surrealistic take where the characters are vocalizing, saying something that in that moment they would not actually be saying. Something that's not grounded and in the moment, like you said. So I, I, I wanted to point those two things out because they felt very un-Tarantino-esque yeah. and I thought that would have been quite fun. What about you, Z? What's your What's your highlight scene? I wish I'd pick something unique. <laughs> no, well, um, I, I picked no, something yeah, unique. For you me, could... I think what I love about Tarantino is is the dialogue and the and the back and forth. And, of course, yeah. And the the talking about nonsense, which is why that prologue sequence that leads into the slow motion walk, introducing the the, the cast and stuff, dun, 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 is dun. for me. I love like, the shudder on that. Is the the epitome of of what was to come. Like the mm. we knew at that moment we were dealing with someone that was not going to be uh, something special was coming, and I think you look at what most people will commonly say is the best scene in a in a film or the most memorable scene in a film mm. in a Tarantino film. It often is a dialogue-driven reprieve scene where characters are talking about nothing. It's the it's the diner scene in Reservoir Jobs. It's the diner scene in Pulp Fiction. It's the um, it's the Christoph Waltz investigation in Glorious Bastards, mm. which is a, uh, a a short film in itself. Yeah, it's 
in hateful eight it's probably something along the lines of either the the kurt russell death scene or the samuel jackson story mm. i guess there's a bit of surrealism in that sequence when samuel talks about mm. killing the colonel's son and he's telling the story and then it's cut into cutting with that story okay yeah um because we don't know how true that is. That's a very subjective reality. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll give so you that. maybe it comes back. It's not the same as the the Roth montage. No. It's it's yeah. It's definitely not as surrealistic. It's but... the DiCaprio in, in in Django Unchained with the talking about the skull. Like mm. these sequences that just embed in your brain. Um. You know, or the the Dalton performance, the one shot push in, in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. They're all really memorable sequences, mm. and they're just about dialogue. And they're often with a resting camera or, or a slowly pushing in camera. They don't do too much. They're not trying to be too stylistic there. And I think it's just how purpose driven his dialogue is. Mm. Um, and we have to. I mean, we sit here, and though he does have re- like returning actors almost every actor in hollywood wants to be in a tarantino film Mm, absolutely and i think that's a testament to his writing capability and well the characters that he crafts i think the characters he crafts and the opportunities as an actor you get working in a tarantino film um because yeah like you said he's a bit of a hard ass but he does allow a little bit more improv improv uh, a little bit more uh, freedom, I think, than someone like Wes Anderson, who's like militant with his vision. Sure. Um, I think that there's definitely nuance. I mean, the Madsen sequence, the stuck in the middle with you performance, that's improv. Is mm. are we saying that 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 no longer exists in his current films? I, I feel like there would have been some improv in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like. Yeah, like, I feel like when a, when, Le- when Leo like loses his shit in the RV and like throwing stuff, I feel like that he might have just been like, "All right, and go." Yeah, but I think when it comes to line delivery, it's like he he's very Fincher-esque. He does not let one word slip. But I think you're right. I think those moments where it's like, "All right, there's a dancing sequence here," or there's a you know lose your shit scene here. I think that's where he lets people yeah. kind of do their own thing. That's yeah. my guess. That's, that's my guess. No, it's interesting. It's a it might require more research. But Reservoir Dogs is currently out on Disney Plus, question mark. Stan. Stan. It's on Stan and buy it. Yeah, I've got, I've got it on DVD. <laughs> I actually have it. I have the VHS. Um, Not the VHS, but like, you know, the fake VHS. Yeah, you do. The tall ones, yeah. It's quite a good they one. They really kind of came and went, didn't they? Those, that sort of. A little bit, yeah. Which is a shame, because, I mean, it's annoying because they're so damn tall. And big. They're actually taller than the real VHSs I have down there. Yeah, they are. Which is bugging me to no end. Such an interesting collection of VHSs. Atlantis. How good is Atlantis, the Lost Empire? All of the VHSs down there are ones they had at um, Fanbase. They were just selling, including the Star Wars, which they're very close to the original cuts. I think I think New Hope still has episode four in the crawl. Oh, okay, so it's not the OG OG, but it's pretty close to the OG. Yeah. Anyway, we're getting kind of distracted. Oh, that's I, okay. I so. no, it's, 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 it's a bit late. We're getting to that late night um, talking. I know. Point. It's it's ten p.m. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for bed. 
<laughs> well, I can't segue from bed, but here we are. No, um, Jake. When what's... you're lying in bed, you, oh, can, you... you can watch. You can watch stuff on your phone. There you go, Jake. What's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near you? All right, I'm gonna take a big breath. There's quite a, <laughs> is there few, a lot. There's quite a few things coming out, especially to theaters. So we're gonna get through this together, folks. You can come into Netflix. You got films like uh, Forrest Gump, Dirty Dancing. The uh, Enola Holmes sequel, starring Millie Bobby Brown. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. Uh, and the blockbuster comedy series has the employees uh, fight for relevancy. Yeah, I'm going to watch that. Yeah? Yeah. I like, uh, I like the actors. It can't... Let's see. It's got, a very, it's got a very Brooklyn Nine-Nine feeling, but it can't. It can't be better than X-Rental, though. <laughs> the superb short film documentary. About the true... I'm not going to lie. It's about the second to last There are some times where I get, like... And this has happened a couple times with friends. Like, you made that documentary. And then, yes. like, a year later, other documentaries popped up about it, but it had clearly more budget and time. Right. And we're trying to, like... But you were about a year ahead of the, the I was curve. ahead of the curve. I was. Well, we had the second to last blockbuster ever over in Morley, which is actually where my brother's going to gonna live. No, did I, did I just like out? Does out him? Yeah, for <laughs> Don't swat him, boys. Don't swat him. Um, yeah, so we took advantage of that, and 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 I mean, we're not going to get into the X rental discussion here. I'm no. gonna, I'm probably gonna watch this blockbuster show, but I'm probably gonna watch it in spite because this is a whole like Netflix are kind mm. of doing laps around them now. Yeah, after the yeah. whole like you know we we could have bought you blah 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 that whole thing, but but it is what it is. Um, coming to stand, you got the Da Vinci Code trilogy. So there's all three films with, I believe, Tom Hanks in it. Mm-hmm. Call me by your name, and Zeke, get excited. Petite Maman is coming to stand. Oh, thank God! So you can finally get to watch that one. Coming to Prime this week, we got My Policeman, which sees Harry Styles as a policeman in 1950s Britain fall in love with a school teacher, but fall into a passionate same-sex affair. Mm. Ooh, a lot of scandalous stuff going on. on yeah, there's a lot going on there. On that, what to unpack on that programmer? So we'll get to that very soon, I imagine. Coming to binge, you got Brad Pitt. We're just talking about him more than a pretty face. There's a documentary about Brad Pitt. Okay. <laughs> I can't say I've ever wanted to explore Brad Pitt personally more, but we can learn more about his studio, Plan B. Is that what his studio that's his That's his studio. Oh, cool. Produced Promising Young Woman, I'm pretty sure. Oh, cool. Speaking of a plan B from Promising Young Woman, that's how the film ends. Yes. It's her plan yes. B. That, that that's, that's her. Yes, to Bo Burnham. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop talking now because that was a terrible segue. Mm-hmm. Coming to Apple TV Plus, we have Causeway, which sees a US soldier sent home after experiencing a traumatic brain injury and struggled to return to daily life as she awaits redeployment. And also, a Selena Gomez documentary. About Selena Gomez? Yeah. Okay. A lot of, lot of unnecessary these, documentaries do these actors week? need documentaries? <laughs> uh, she's a Disney star. Unless, she's gonna, unless there's going to be commentary on how toxic the Disney... <laughs> That's the only reason I watch that it. That could be cool. Yeah. Talk about Disney star gone wrong. If it's anything like the Harry Potter 20th anniversary thing, where Rupert Grin and Emma Emma Watson are like, yeah, we actually we went through a lot as children during this 10 year production, but we're gonna we're gonna sweep that away because we want to cut to people being reminiscent on the magic, 
Anyway, that was a minor nitpick for that for that film. It's okay. Coming to Paramount Plus, you have Unhuman, which is a Blumhouse film that sees a group of high school students attempt to survive not only their school bus crash, but also their stalker. Ooh. Cool. Stalker's coming for them. Crash the school bus. That's kind of Freddy-esque, isn't it? Nutman yeah, Elm Street-esque. I guess. I think that probably selling Freddy um, Nightmare of Elm Street short though isn't it no I swear school bus crash survival I swear there's I don't know which one it is it could be like the the fifth film but there's definitely a school bus scene with Freddy I'm gonna look it up real quick I'm positive this scene exists Freddy school bus it's at school of rock oh right Freddy from school of rock ah here we go Freddy 2 bus ride to hell that's right Freddy's driving the school bus I'm not crazy. That's the second film. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. God, he looks really bad in this uh, Freddy's Dead clip from 1991. Oh, jeez. Yeah, Freddy 2, Freddy's Revenge. Sorry, Nightmare Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, School Bus. Look it up. I'm not I'm not crazy, Zeke. And finally, coming to cinemas, we have Armageddon. Ar- 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 is it Armageddon? Um, a Majin, a time, Armageddon time. It has to be Armageddon, right? It has to be. I must have. I'm so confused. Either way, it's a story of a young, fraught friendship in the '80s between a young Jewish boy and an African American boy. It also stars Jeremy Strong, Anna Hathaway, or Anne Hathaway, and Anthony Hopkins. That's a good cast, right That's there. That's an interesting one. The Wonder is previewing at Luna ahead of its Netflix release and sees Florence Pugh. As a nurse in the Irish Midlands of 1862, as she cares for an 11-year-old who has miraculously survived months without eating or drinking. This looks cool. Being a nurse again. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully this is uh, significantly better than uh, than the other film that she started a little earlier this year. Not yes, her own it fault, It is indeed course. Armageddon time. Oh, good, good. I must have wrote it strange in my, my document. That's okay. You've also got Sissy which these high school besties Cecilia and Emma bump into each other years later. And when the former is invited to the latter's bachelorette weekend in a remote cabin, she quickly develops a taste for revenge. Yeah, it's kind of like a... like a, a spree slash um, mainstream sort of social media commentary wrapped into a, a shutter horror film. Mm. Looks kind of cool, I'm not going to lie. Didn't mind what I saw in the trailer. Uh, Volcano Man sees filmmaker James Crawley turn the camera back around on his father Richard for a change to document the life of his eccentric documentarian father. It's like the reverse of (laughs) Dick Johnson's dead. (laughs) His name's even Richard. There you go. Gloria Vale is the New Zealand documentary that explores the abusive relationship between both current and former members of the Gloria Vale Christian community. There is also a Q&A screening of that film at Luna Leaderville this Wednesday, the 2nd of November. So with mm. the film's director. Very exciting. Weiner is a biopic of the trailblazing Maui leader, Dame Weiner Cooper. And finally, Palace is doing an encore screening of Mean Streets in celebration of Scorsese's 80th birthday, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes. Very exciting. We should we should keep an eye out on that, Zeke. I think we should. With the Scorsese birthday. We don't want to miss his birthday. There's a lot. There's a lot happening mm. in November. A lot of enticing, a lot of things to celebrate. Yeah, November I, will hopefully be the best month of the year. To oh, date. 
Excellent. Touch wood. Very exciting. Y- your microphone is not made of wood. You can't touch that. No. This is kind of. There you go. Wood enough. We did it. Beautiful. <laughs> Good job getting through. I know you still got a little bit of a cough. <coughs> I'm dying. Help me. We need to finish this podcast. No worries. Well, <laughs> we're not catching any of those next week on the show. We are watching something completely different. But, Jake, mm. what are we watching? Something very exciting for our 199th episode, Zeke. It's, it's happening. It's happening. We are watching Thomas M. Wright's The Stranger. Hey, do you want me to teach you something that I learned at work? Close your eyes and you're going to breathe in. When you breathe in, you gotta imagine that you're breathing in really clear air. And then when you breathe out, you breathe out all the black, dark, bad air. Mark, an undercover cop, forms an intense, intimate relationship with Henry, a murder suspect, in an attempt to earn his trust and get a confession, risking both their lives in the process. That's a lot of commas, Zeke. Yeah. You got Mark, comma, undercover cop, comma, forms an intense, comma, intimate relationship with Henry, comma, murder suspect, comma, attempt to earn his trust and get a confession, comma, risking both... That's six commas. That's a lot of commas. Just, just... Ugh. I mean, I get it. A lot of positive praise for this film, though. Yeah, no, it is. I know. Um, it's Australian. It, yeah, Australian film. It's obviously on Netflix now. I think it premiered. My premiered at Sundance, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's, this is. I'm curious. This is gonna be, this is gonna be a good film to check out. I'm excited. Dramas. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with the Stranger.